Oh, Father, we love you. And we're so grateful and so thankful for the chance just to come and worship you, to be near to you, uh, to praise you. Reminded this morning, Lord, that if we didn't praise you, the rocks and the trees, they'd cry out. So what an honor and how grateful we are that we get to be a part of the, of the people that praise you. Um, Lord, we're thankful this morning as we gather um, just for your grace and your compassion and your mercy for how Hurricane Ian moved away from this area. But Lord, simultaneously, we're reminded um, of how devastating that disaster was for so many um, millions, Lord, and hundreds of families who are suffering uh, loved ones, loss of property, loss of, of peace and comfort and security. We pray, Lord, that you'd be the great comforter to them as these families are, are potentially even crying out why. We ask, Lord, you'd be gracious in the answer to that and be near to them. I pray for wisdom for those in leadership, for those uh, that, are, that are responding to this disaster, for strength, for courage, um, knowing that this cleanup is, is going to take time. So, Lord, be Lord, be sovereign Lord over the situation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all go ahead and have a seat for me. Hey, how's the, how are the Georgia Bulldog fans doing this morning? Y'all sweating? I knew we had two services today, so I thought, man, I'm going to um, I'm going to go to bed at a decent hour. I'm going to get my rest, and then I checked the score in the third quarter, and I got up and went downstairs and watched the rest of the game. I couldn't get away from it. All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be completing Acts 4 this morning and then also beginning in the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. It's good to see all of you. Uh, You know, we have a second service at 11. Seems like everybody chose the 9, so all we did was condense the room. Um, But um, as a kid growing up, I'm from northwest Georgia, I had the real privilege of being raised in proximity to my extended family. I don't know if you had a childhood like that where I had all my cousins, uh, aunts, uncles, and, and every Sunday we had this amazing tradition where we would gather at my great-grandmother's house. Um, amazing tradition. 4, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., gather at my great-grandmother's house. And, uh, but indoors at my grandmother's house, there was not a lot that would hold my attention as a young boy, um, except for the, you know, we had fried chicken, that was our staple, and mac and cheese. Um, but indoors, apart from that, there wasn't much going on. Uh, there was two reasons I hated being indoors. For whatever reason, great-grandmother's house, the temperature was always set to whatever the temperature of the sun was. <laughs> and then secondly, you know, I didn't enjoy watching Jeopardy at that age on the loud, loudest volume setting that, you know, that there was. But outdoors, y'all, was a totally different story. Um, hundreds of acres of pasture land, heads of cattle, old barn and well, I mean, a place where you could find all kinds of treasures and trinkets. My brothers and I would eat that up. But by far the greatest thing at my great-grandmother's house were these two twin 70-foot-tall southern magnolia trees, okay? If you're from the south, you know exactly, what did you think of when I said southern magnolia trees? Climbing trees. I mean, y'all, those are the best climbing trees known to man. And I have a vivid memory of the first time that I got up one of these, these twin magnolia trees. Um, I was confident in my ability. I was probably six years old, but I also had that, like, that deep fear, you know, that caution that kind of drives the first time you do something like that. Um, but over time, Sunday after Sunday, the more my brother and I climbed this tree, um, the more confident I got, the easier it got. And I have this vivid memory, I think I was eight years old at the time, where I'm in one of these trees, my older brother's in the other, and uh, it happened. I, I got a little overly confident. I didn't want him to get as high as, as I was, you know, so I, I took an extra step up and snap. I hit the wrong branch, and uh, y'all, it was a free fall. 
I mean, my brother said I was wearing a red T-shirt, and he remembers watching me just, just a blur falling through this thing, real tall. And by God's grace and truly a miracle, I ended up catching myself about six feet from the ground and walked away really with just some scratches and scrapes. But more importantly, I walked away with, with a, a renewed sense of fear, you know, a renewed sense of caution of like what, what it means to climb these trees, knowing that I'm always one dead twig away from that free fall. And similarly, that's, that's actually what we're going to see in this passage today. Um, we're going to see that the early church is continuing in the same way that they have been. They're booming, they're thriving, they're flourishing. The, the, the passage in Acts 4 verse 33 is actually going to tell us they're growing in great grace, that great grace is upon the church. But what we're going to see in Acts 5 is, is perhaps they begin to neglect a great fear that should accompany us as we climb those trees or as we become the church. So if you have your Bible, let's begin by reading the first part of our passage, Acts chapter 4 verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Great grace. That's what I want us to look at in this first part is great grace. Verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Now this begs the question, I think, for us, what is grace? Right? As a Christian, you would say, man, the doctrine of grace, that's an important belief for us. But I think if we were honest, we would probably go, what? What is grace? Like, what does it actually mean? And what's the most common definition we hear of grace? Unmerited favor, right? If you've been around the church at all, you've heard that grace is unmerited favor. And I'm not here to burst your bubble. I'm just going to affirm that's a good definition, okay? When we talk about grace, it is unmerited favor. That means that it is favor bestowed on you by God without merit, meaning it's unearned. There's nothing that you have done, nothing that you can do to earn the favor that God has bestowed on us. So when we talk about how, um, or the Bible talks about how we're saved by grace, it means you are saved by God's unmerited favor. Nothing you've done has earned that salvation. Nothing you can do can earn that salvation. It's wholly dependent upon who God is. Y'all, he's gracious. He's just a good giver. You can't outgive him. Nothing you've done has earned that. It's based on him, not on you. Okay, so when we're saved by grace, it is God's unmerited favor. But there's actually 124 occurrences of the word grace in the New Testament. And many of those have no, no regard to the concept of salvation. When you read them in context, it's not within a context of salvation. So when we read those passages or those usages of grace, we have to expand our definition outside of the concept of salvation. Are you with me? So let me give you two examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul writes this. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All right, let me give you one more usage. 2 Corinthians 12, this is a bit more of a popular one. Paul's begging with the Lord about his thorn in his side, and asking God to remove him, but God responds in verse 9 by saying, My grace is sufficient for you. Right? My power is made perfect in weakness. So that word grace is being used in these contexts without anything to do with salvation. Right? There's, there's nothing here about salvation. So what it's saying is that these usages are using grace to refer to the action or the power or the influence that produces real and practical outcomes in your daily life. 
Paul is saying in that first instance that God's grace will empower the Corinthian church so they can abound in every good work. You with me? So God's grace will empower you to abound in every good work. In the second usage, God is saying that grace will empower him even in spite of his own weaknesses. So let me, let me expand our definition then outside of the unmerited favor by saying God's grace is his uncoerced initiative in salvation, right? We see that. Yet at the same time, it's his pervasive and ongoing demonstrations of favor and care and strength. Are you with me? So it's not just salvation. It continues through every day of our life. Let me say it another way. God's grace does not stop when we're saved. It is provided and relied upon for the rest of our lives. So when we talk about grace, we're not just talking about unmerited, unmerited favor in salvation. We're talking about how the church, already saved, gathered together as the full believers in our passage, great grace is continuing upon them all. Great grace is continuing to motivate them and to empower them, to, instri- to strengthen them through everything that they do. And that word great in this passage, we, we, we're going to see it a lot. We're going to see it in Acts 5 as well. It's the Greek word mega, right? Mega, which is huge. It's massive. The Bryan County mega site, right? How many of y'all, you've heard about that? Everybody's heard about that? It's going to provide 3 million jobs and 10 million houses. You know, every time I hear somebody talk about it, it's always a little bit more, you know, than it is. But regardless, it's a huge site. It's a massive site. It's a mega site. And that's what we have here in grace. Y'all, this is mega grace. It's massive grace. It's a lot of grace that is resting upon his people. And when we see the great grace of Christ in Acts 4, 32-37, it's observable in two primary ways. Unity and generosity. Right? When you read this passage, you see immediately that the grace of God is empowering unity and generosity. Let's break those two down in their unity. Look at verse 32 with me. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The full number. Let's camp out for a second. That's thousands of people. The full number of them. And we read from Acts chapter 2 that the full number includes Parithians and Medes and people from Libya, people from Rome, Jews, Arabians. Y'all, these were not similar people. These were a diverse group of people. Yet the full number of them, all of them were walking in one heart, in one soul. That's a, that's a remarkable statement. And what it shows is that great grace leads to unity, not uniformity. Are you with me? Great grace empowers our unity, not uniformity, and I think we confuse the two a little too often, right? What we tend to yearn for when we talk about unity in the church, we're actually just yearning for uniformity. We want everybody to look like us and talk like us and act like us, but y'all, this is not what the church was happening. This is not what they're experiencing. They were not Christian clones. They didn't carry the same translation of the Bible. You know, it wasn't written yet. They weren't reading the same books. They're not promoting the same styles of worship. They're not educating their children in the same way. There's diversity within this church. We can't assume that the early church was seeing everything eye to eye because insisting that others be just like us, insisting upon uniformity is actually one of the more disunifying mindsets that we can have in the church because it promotes this judgmental inflexibility that actually pushes people away from the grace of Christ instead of bringing them in. It's, it's an arrogance that demands uniformity. It's an arrogance that thinks we, everybody should act like us, look like us, believe like us outside of the things of the gospel. And it contradicts the essential element of unity, which is humility, right? So the gospel, the, great, the grace of Christ, the great grace that promotes unity, not uniformity. It's one of the reasons I love leading our church plant because, y'all, we're a diverse group of people. Like, we have people here gathering every Sunday that are, that are background Pentecostals. 
that wish that our worship would go on for, for another hour, a little bit more spontaneous, right? A little bit louder. Sitting right next to some background old school Presbyterians who hate the fact that we have this thing. It's called a cajon, right? And we wish we could, we could do more hymns, right? There's, but yet at the same time, people with those preferences are able to put those aside because there's unity, not an insistence upon uniformity. We have people that have metaphorically been raised in church, yet at the same time, people who have never stepped foot in church. I love that. It's great grace promotes unity, not uniformity. And the church was united, verse 32, because they were of one heart and one soul, and that was attainable through great grace because they were united as to who Christ was and what their purpose was. I'm going to read a quote from A.W. Tozer about the unity of the church that has just really blown me away this week as I prepared. Listen to this. Tozer writes, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to the standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Did you hear that? 100 pianos are all able to, to sound uniform, not because they're uniform, but because they're tuned to the same fork. So we, as the church, we can walk in the unity that's propelled by great grace, not by looking horizontally, right? Not insisting upon uniformity, but by looking to Christ and Christ alone. So great grace promoted and led to their unity. But the second thing that really jumps out here in Acts 4 is that great grace led to generosity, right? You can't read this passage without seeing the radical generosity of the church. Let's look at verse 34. It says, there was not a needy person among them. What a statement. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Y'all, great grace leads the church to be generous. This is a generous church. And just as I said that great grace leads to unity, not uniformity, I want to say it leads to generosity, not, not communism. All right, and let me, let me talk about that for just a second, because when we look at this passage, many would argue, hey, there's not a needy person among them. Everybody's selling what there is. Nobody says that what they own is their own. Many would argue from that passage that what we need then is a socialized commune, some, some communist state. But, y'all, this is, this is not what great grace promotes, okay? Because communism, as we know it, says, hey, what is yours? It's everybody's. Aren't you with me? Communism says, what is yours is everybody's. But what we read here is that great grace promotes a generosity that says, hey, what is mine is yours. You see the difference? What is mine is yours. That's what great grace promotes. There's not anybody in the early church running around at this time like my two-year-old, who's right across that hall, probably doing it right now, screaming, mine. Right? If you've had kids or been around kids, they're precious until they learn two words, no and mine. And our two-year-old, as cute as he is, runs around screaming mine all the time. But that's not what the church is doing. And if you you know, haven't been around kids or you're a first-time parent, let me give you some wisdom okay? just about that concept. We have a rule in our house, he's our fourth, that if you can't wipe yourself, nothing is yours. That's a rule of a universe. So that's, that, that's just part of it. You can take that or leave it as you is. So no matter how much he screams mine, we remind him often that the, the universe says otherwise. But the church is not doing that. They're not running around screaming mine. That's not in their vocabulary. Nothing they have they're claiming as being as their own. Now, what's really interesting in the way that Luke writes this, the way that he structures this, the way that he summarizes this early church is because the words he uses and the argument that flows is, is almost identical to what we find in Greek philosophy. 
Aristotle, Plato, they always wrote about this ideal utopian state that was devoid of private ownership and, and possessed this communal sharing. It was a Greek ideal, and I think Luke is being really intentional here by saying, hey, what the Greeks esteem as ideal is actually a reality for the Christian church when great grace is promoting it. But it wasn't just some Greek ideal. Deuteronomy 15 tells us that if we're faithful and obedient to the law, there would be no poor among you. There'd be no needy among you. This was a Jewish state ideal. And the early church's reality of generosity is a fulfillment of Israel's command to be faithful to the law, meaning this. What was unattainable by obedience to the Old Testament law is now fully attainable when we walk in the great grace of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of generosity. But let me, let me throw a couple of additional notes just about generosity, some things that, that jump, out of the, on the, jump out to me that I think could be applicable for us. Look at that, that their generosity, y'all, it was voluntary. Right? Nobody's like twisting their arm. There's no club entry fee where you have to sell your land or your possessions and lay that at the apostles' feet. You don't gain entrance into the church by giving generously. Their, their giving was just voluntary. And I think it's in a response to the great grace that they had personally experienced in their own lives. You see, y'all, God loves a cheerful giver, a willing giver, a voluntary giver. And so many of us, we want to know what the Bible says about tithing so that we can meet with obligation whatever the minimum requirement is, right? That's usually the heart that drives our desire to understand tithing. But y'all, you can give a lot of money. You can sell your house and give it to the church. Yet at the same time, your heart can be far from God. God loves a cheerful giver, a voluntary giver. And, and if you're new to us as a church, which all of you are, okay, this is why we don't pass a plate, or one of the reasons we don't pass a tithing plate. Because we don't want you to be compelled to give out of compulsion. We don't want you to be tempted to give so that others can watch you give. We want it to be an act of worship. We want you to give cheerfully and voluntarily in response to the great grace of Christ that you've experienced in your life. Okay? So their, their generosity, it was voluntary, but it was also radical. I mean, let's be honest, right? This is radical generosity. I have not had any of you come to me and say, hey, we just sold our house in Waterways. want you to have it. You know, want you to have all the proceeds. And it happened. Because this is radical generosity. And if you did that, y'all, I'd probably be the first one to start pumping the brakes. I'd, I'd be like, hey, let's, I don't know you. <laughs> let's dig in a little bit. What's, what's propelling this? Like, what's moving into this? This is tough. I mean, this is radical, radical generosity. And the only thing I can explain it by is that they have to be compelled by some great grace. There's, there's no motivation that can move someone to give like this except for the grace of Christ. And I really believe that once you and I can comprehend the greatness of God's grace, we'll begin to see that, y'all, nothing is ours, right? That nothing you have is ours, it's all God's. And that we're just called to be stewards of everything that he's given, his, our, our time, our talents, our treasure, all of it is God's, is at his disposal. But that can only be motivated by great grace. So let's close out Acts 4 here. The church was experiencing great grace. That great grace was being seen in the empowerment of the church in unity and generosity. And as we conclude chapter 4, we get this amazing story of Barnabas. Let's read it together real quick, verse 36. It's, it's almost an example, like a, a portrayal of what was just summarized in the life of Barnabas. He says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field, that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this example of what Luke's trying to summarize. But look how Luke immediately opens chapter 5 with a contrast. He goes, hey, here's Barnabas, right? He's propelled by great grace. Then you see this conjunction in Acts 5 verse 1. But 
Okay, so now we're going to get to some challenging parts of Scripture. Let's read our second part of our passage, Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell dead and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, I sold it for that much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell dead at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Can we just take a deep breath here, okay? Y'all, this is a challenging passage. Like, this is a hard passage. And if we as a church didn't preach through books of the Bible, this is one of those, you'd be really tempted. Let's just skip over. In fact, in my study this week, I realized that of the 3,600 recorded sermons of Charles Spurgeon, not one of them was about Ananias and Sapphira. Pretty amazing. You know why? Because this is hard to conceptualize. It's really hard to understand the severity of what we find here. I mean, what Ananias and, and Sapphira went through, it seems so ungracious, right? So non-redemptive. So how do we talk about the great grace that is upon them all and then see the severity and the harshness of what we find here? But y'all, I really believe, just before we dive in and dissect this a little bit, I really believe that if we want to be a part of God's story continue, that, that we need to hear what, what's happening here. We really need to dissect this together and appropriate it to our lives as well. So the way I want to dissect it is I want to pose three questions, and then I want to answer those, okay? The first is just, what is their sin? Like, what did they do wrong in this passage? They lied. As simple as I can put it, they, they lied. Much like Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira said, hey, we're going, to, we're going to sell our land, we're going to sell our house, and we're going to lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. So they pledged the full amount of that sale to the apostles. But when time came around to present the full amount, what they do? Verse 2 says they, they kept back for themselves some of the proceeds. They promised 100K and ended up giving, what, 50, 40? Who, who knows what that was? He kept back for himself some of the proceeds. So their sin was that they lied to the point where Peter actually says, hey, why does Satan enter your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? We see Sapphire lying. Peter asked her, hey, did you sell the land for, for this amount? I wish they'd have told us. We don't, we don't know. And she says, yeah, yeah, we sold it for that amount. He lied. Peter says, why do, you, why do you put it in your heart to test the spirit of the Lord? They were lying. So their sin was lying. So what motivated that? Like what would motivate them to lie? From Scripture, I see a couple of clear things, okay? The first is Satan. Satan motivated them to lie. Look, at, look there in the passage in, in verse 2 and 3. Verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan motivated them to lie. Y'all Satan hates the church. Satan hates the glory of God. Satan hates the fact that God's story is continuing. He worked hard to shut it up before it got going. That's why he killed Jesus. 
That's why he filled the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. He wanted to quit this story from moving forward. This is why we see in Acts 4 that the Sanhedrin is so intent on shutting up these apostles, to threatening them with their lives. But what we see all throughout church history is when external pressure increases on the church, it just becomes more pure, more powerful, more influential. The church tends to thrive under that external persecution. So what's Satan do? Changes up his strategy. Let me get in on the inside. Let me try to corrode it from within. And it's the same way that he got Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same way he got Judas. Why did Judas, how, how much money did Judas betray Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. The love of money was part of the motivation here. Ananias and Sapphira loved their money. And, and, now, I want to say, I really believe that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Acts 4, 32, now the full number of those who believed, I believe Ananias and Sapphira were a part of that full number. But I believe like, like many of us, even my own heart at times, that we have our one foot in the church, but yet we still keep one foot into the world. And, and we find our worldly security and the earthly possessions that we have. And I believe Ananias and Sapphira were motivated by that. Satan and the love of money. But what's crazy about this passage is, is he never had to lie. Like Peter makes it clear, like, why are you lying? He says, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Like, you didn't have to sell. Remember, this is voluntary. Nothing you did was, had to be done. And then he says, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Hey, you didn't have to pledge the full amount. You could have given 1%, 2%, you know, like my four-year-old, we count all the way up to 100 every day. You could do as many percentages as you want. You did not have to pledge the full amount, but you lied. You lied, and, and Peter makes it clear, you lied not to man, but to God. So what was their motivation? Satan, the love of money. But let's use just our sanctified imaginations for a second. What other motivations could you see here? What about, the, what about the praise of man or the acceptance of the church or the approval of the church? Like if you were in that room, you're sitting in the back and you see this guy named Joseph walk up and lay his field at the feet of the apostles and everybody claps, you know, and then they give him a new nickname. You know, I bet Ananias and Sapphira were like, man, well, I want a new nickname. You know, I want the praise like that. I want the acceptance and the approval like that. Maybe they were motivated to be, to be seen like Barnabas was seen. Because this wasn't just some miscalculation, right, in their checkbook. This was premeditated. And I would imagine if, if their hearts were anything like my hearts, maybe it was for um, the applause, the respect, the acceptance, the approval of others. Maybe they wanted people to think they were more spiritual than they really were. Hypocrisy much? No? Anybody else? You know, you, you present yourself to be a little bit more spiritual than you really are, presenting themselves outwardly in a way that's inconsistent with who we really know that we are internally. But I don't know. I mean, that's just all sanctified motivations. We know it was Satan. We know the love of money played a role. I, I can imagine the approval, maybe presenting themselves as more spiritual, but the point is their sin was that they lied. What was their sin? They lied. So that leads to the next question, right? Why such a severe punishment? Like, how many of you guys have lied before? All of you not raising your hand, you know? Where's our young men? I'm just kidding. You know, we've all lied, right? We've, we've all lied. So, so why such a severe punishment here? How do, we, how do we make up for this? There's a really good biblical reason for it, and I'm, I'm going to give it to you. But I don't want to skip over the fact that to just make the point, y'all, sin is serious. Like, let me just say it. Sin is serious. God is holy. And the spirit that was leading and strengthening and empowering and adding to the church every day, you know what that spirit's name is? The Holy Spirit. 
Satan had filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, sin is the antithesis to holiness. It, it's cancer to a healthy cell. It's a flea to a dog. Whatever comparison you want to make, it corrodes, it corrupts, it ruins, it stains. Sin is a serious offense to the holiness of God. All sin is. It's really hard for us to grasp the great the grace of Christ until we can fully understand the depths of, and the severity of what sin is to the holiness of God. Does that make sense? It's not good news until we can really understand how bad news sin is. And sin is an offense to God. But, as I hope you've heard from me Sunday after Sunday, and I'm going to say it again now, God satisfied his wrath, which, which was aimed at sin, by pouring his wrath upon who in our place? Christ. Christ was our substitute, so Christ took the punishment of our sin. So why not here? Like, why is it so severe? Why so harsh here? And the answer is because it's consistent with Scripture. I'm not, I didn't say it was comfortable, okay? But it's consistent with Scripture. Throughout history, here's the point. Throughout history, whenever there was a new setting or a new season for the people of Israel, and God had made clear what his expectations were, what his standards were, he would have a severe punishment and consequence for the first offense against it. All right, let me, let me give you a couple of examples. This is why Moses was forbidden to enter into the promised land, because he disobeyed the Lord. And God told him and the people of Israel that when they entered into the land, they had to be diligent in keeping all that he commanded, all, all that he commanded. But even though Moses had done so much for God, so much for the people of Israel, he was forbidden to enter into that land because he was not diligent in keeping all that God had commanded. That's pretty severe, isn't it? But you know what? That's a pretty good example for the people of Israel too. When they see that Moses was given such a severe punishment, it would have meant something for them. It would have been a good example for them. This is why when Joshua had finally led the people of Israel into the promised land, but they could not defeat the people of Ai. Or I, I don't know really how to pronounce that. Ai. They had a severe defeat. They, they could not drive them out. And eventually they cast lots and found that this one man by the name of Achan had stolen some idols of the people around them and, and, and put them in his camp. And they cast lots and they figured out that Achan had betrayed the, the commandment to have no idols before him, to not worship the things that should be devoted to destruction. And what did they do? Even though, even though Achan confessed, repented, they stoned him in front of all. Severe punishment, but a good example for the people of the Lord. Let me give you one more. This is why Uzzah was struck dead when he touched the ark of the Lord in 2 Samuel 6. You ever read that passage and you go, good gracious. All he did was touch the ark of the Lord. It was because in that context, people of Israel were beginning to view the ark of the covenant, which was the very presence of God, as some magical talisman, just the way that all the surrounding nations viewed their gods and not viewing it as the very presence of God. So he struck dead immediately, a severe punishment in order to set an example for the people of God. So here we look to the establishment of the new covenant, the church. And God has told them what it would look like to follow him. But Ananias and Sapphira sinned, and a severe punishment came upon them to be an example for the church. I said it was consistent. I didn't say it was comfortable, right? Still hard to process. So what, is, what does that mean for the church? Like, what did that mean for them? What example did it set? And let me conclude by answering that question. What does that mean for us? Let's look at verse 5, Acts 5, verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And what was the response of the church? Great fear came upon all who heard it. Look at verse 11. Same thing happened to Sapphira. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of those who heard these things. 
is that magnolia tree. Do we grow overly confident in our grace, in our ability to scale this tree, forgetting that caution, that healthy fear, that awe and that reverence that can keep us in step with what God has expected us to be? This early church was walking in great grace, but they also needed to walk with great fear. That great grace, it saves. That great grace empowers our, our unity and our generosity, but that great grace should also promote us to a great fear, remembering that we too, y'all, can quench the Holy Spirit of God. Our sin will do that. We can corrupt the witness of the church that we're called to be. We're called to be witnesses, to continue his story, but we need to be cautious and reminded that we can corrupt the witness of that church. So y'all, this, this is a call to confront ourselves. It's, it's not comfortable, but it is a call to confront ourselves. The point is, we are not any better than Ananias or Sapphira, right? It, I, none of you were honest earlier, which proved my point. We, we've all lied. We're, we're not any better off than Ananias and Sapphira. And if we were really honest with ourselves, I, I think that we would freely admit that we share in their sins at times. Right? We share in their sin. Let me say this. We share in their sin when we bow to duplicity. It's a good SAT word for our high schoolers in the room, right? We're a duplicitous person when we intentionally mislead people by acting in ways that are inconsistent with who we are. It's another word for hypocrisy, right? That's the, you want to know a, a good a little tip for you? If you don't want to have any small talk or if you don't want to talk to somebody, um, let me give you a way to get out of it. When somebody asks me what I do, I know it's coming, as soon as I say I'm a pastor, everybody's like, oh, man, nobody wants to talk to me anymore. You know? But usually when people want to talk to me after they hear that I'm a pastor, they'll say, oh, man, the church, you know, there's just so much hypocrisy in the church. Right? Have you ever heard that? Just hypocrisy in the church. And after a while, I listen. I'm trying to be empathetic. And finally, I go, yep, you know, you're right. Just immediately want to affirm him. You are right. We are full of hypocrites. But we got room for one more. That's usually how I respond to every one of those. We've got room for one more because we're all guilty. We're all full of hypocrisy. And here's where we share Ananias' sin. We share their sin not when others think we're more spiritual than we really are, but when, when, when we try to make others think that we're more spiritual than we really are. Right? When we try to convince people that we're people of prayer, when we know deep down that we struggle, when we make it look like we, all, we have it all together, but behind closed doors we know we're broken, hurting. Right? When we create the impression that, that we're a generous people, when in fact we're so controlled by money that Scrooge you know, would, would shame us. Here's a, here's a good one. When we embellish our impact, right? It's a temptation that churches theory. Oh, yeah, we're, we're a church of 500 people. You know, and the only way that we could ever get to that number is if we stood out there and counted all the joggers, you know, that come through J.F. Gregory. It's an embellishment. When we're, we're, when we're living duplicitly or we're, we're being hip, hypocrites, walking in hypocrisy. So, y'all, this is a, it's a call to confront ourselves, to really ask the Holy Spirit, where are we guilty in what Ananias and Sapphira have walked in? And if we were honest and dared to really ask that question, it should produce in us, as well as it did the early church, a great fear. To remind us of that caution that we need as we intend to be the witness here in Richmond Hill and in and around. Because God, y'all, he's, he's to be revered with our lips and with our lives. And it only takes how many sin to corrupt the church? Just one. It just takes one sin to corrupt the witness that we possess and quench the great grace that we all long for. So, Great fear came upon the whole church. We all want the great grace, and I'll close with this. We all want the great grace, but we have to remember we're just one dead twig away. We also need the great fear. We're, we're one misstep, one duplicitous moment, one sin away from forgetting that great fear that will empower us alongside that great grace 
to make us a witnessing church as we continue God's story here in Richmond Hill and in the surrounding areas. So let me, let me pray for us as we close this morning, and our team will come back up and lead us um, in a song. Um, Father, we're so grateful for you, um, but what a challenging, challenging passage. I'm thankful for your grace in our lives, thankful for the fact that although we have sinned and although we are guilty of hypocrisy, um, we're still breathing, we're still here, and that's just another testimony of your grace, that you do not deal with us according to our sins, but you dealt with Christ according to our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for being the substitute of our sins. Thank you for the great grace that we've been able to experience as a church. Um, just the unity, not the uniformity, the radical generosity. Thank you for the opportunity we have together week after week. We recognize that's promoted, empowered by your great grace. But God, I don't want us, myself, beginning with me, to be a church that neglects that fear. You are holy. Lord, forgive us when we sin. Search our hearts. See if there's any evil or sinful way in us and, and give us the courage to lay that at, our, at your feet, knowing that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as your scriptures say. So you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of, of a praise in response to that great grace, but you're also worthy of us walking in, in great fear, great reverence up to who you are. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.